steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, unfortunately, we're going to have to postpone uh, episode two of the Alex Chase on show, <laughs> which was a smash hit in its debut yesterday, oh, by oh, the way. Oh, no, we don't. <laughs> Oh no, we don't. Can you imagine? I got some chase on updates for the <laughs> for the listeners. I got some takes. I got uh, some takes. I got some updates. I got some tidbits. But look, look, let me let me just say this really quickly. I I texted an exec that I occasionally talk to, and they called me back and and in the tone of rushing me off the line said, "Sorry, man. I, I I'm just working on two blockbusters with the Canucks. Give me a second. Hung up." <laughs> so that's the type of that's the that's the season we're in now. Everyone just joking about. Making big moves and trying to get everyone's heart racing. That's where we're at. It's that the, is where we at. It's the dawn of the silly season. And we saw a legit big move uh, go down in the NHL yesterday. Uh, almost immediately after we left the airwaves. Yes, very perfectly timed. Super convenient. Uh, but with Kevin Fiala, of course, going to LA and then signing a long-term big money extension on top of that as well. So, I mean, that's fascinating in its own right. And you can try to draw lines and, and connect the dots between that situation and that trade and that subsequent qu- contract and some of the things the Canucks are dealing with. But also in the you know intervening 24 hours almost now, we've started to hear a pickup in interesting reports and interesting tidbits uh, from the Canucks' own players, like completely independent of the, or on the Canucks' own players, I should say, completely independent of the Kevin Fiala situation. And I, I know you've got lots to got report lots. here. And I did some work on Fiala too. I, I want to I talk to you. So we're going to get Fiala into thing. all of it. Uh, yeah. 650 650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online at dunbarlumber.com. And just to kind of set the table, we'll start on the Brock Besser topic. And I did want to play this clip back from uh, from Daily Faceoffs, Frank Saravelli, who's a regular contributor here on Sportsnet 650. He was on with Halford and Bruff in the morning, and he had this to say about where things stand between the Canucks and Brock Besser. I have my trade target story coming out on Daily Faceoff in the next few hours, and Brock Besser is going to be added to the list. And I don't think they're actively shopping Brock Besser. Like, I'm sure they're listening if, if someone wanted to um, you know, really engage in, in conversation. But I think to this point, the negotiation has sort of, it's gone nowhere. Uh, they've gone back and forth. And I think the Canucks have made their case as to where they think Brock Besser is. Um, the Besser camp is like, well, like, what are we, what are we do? What's the plan here? What are we doing? Like, if you think that we're unreasonable and vice versa, like, why don't we either just do a, you know, the, do the one-year qualifying offer and let's just get this over with, come back for one year at that number? Or if not, like, let's just, let's trade him. Like, let's let's move on. Like, if you don't think that Brock Besser is a fit for your team and you're not sold on him being a long-term part of your team or even at a term that, that makes sort of everyone comfortable and gives security, like, why continue to go around and around in circles? That is Frank Saravelli again, daily face-off NHL insider and regular Sportsnet 650 contributor, earlier today describing an impasse between Brock Besser and the Canucks. Drancer, how does that align with what you're hearing on the situation? Oh, Frank doesn't need me to vet his work, but of course that's good <laughs> intel. That's very good intel from, from Frank, and I think a good insight into where we're at. Now, it's an interesting one because... As more and more chatter picks up around the idea of an impasse, my gut reaction is often the opposite, right? Like my, my, my gut reaction is 
hey, that, that might be signs of progress, especially when you're talking about a really complex, really arduous path toward a compromise, right? A compromise deal is something that no one's ever really, really happy with, right? It's something where everyone's giving and taking a bit. And so the fact that it's a hard slog to me doesn't necessarily register as a huge negative. And yet, as we go into this weekend, you know, I can tell you that there have been internal discussions among the Canucks about the prospect of electing for or, or taking filing for club elected arbitration deadlines on Saturday. That's July 2nd. And of course, the arbitration path is a fascinating one because it permits the club to seek to reduce his compensation by 15% versus his $7.5 million qualifying offer. So that's a $6.375 million ticket if you win the arbitration case, which of course is hardly guaranteed when you're talking about a guy who's a, you know, 0.8 points per game player for his NHL career, scores at a, you know, 30 goal, 65 point rate per 82 games uh, and has 350 games of, of an NHL track record. I mean, even though it was a 46 point platform year for him, he still scored 23. It's not like a slam dunk that you necessarily get the full reduction at arbitration. Plus, if you file for club elected arbitration, the player gets to select a one or two year term. So the player could effectively walk himself to unrestricted free agency, not ideal. Plus, you don't have a settled number until late in the offseason. Plus, the player can still go out and sign an offer sheet and blow up your whole framework anyway, right? Now, that's only happened in one case, right? There's only been one time ever, to my knowledge, in the cap era that a team has taken advantage of the team files for club elected arbitration and then a team signs the offer sheet. And ironically, it was the Canucks who did it with David Backus. So, um, you know, overall, I sort of look at the arbitration route and see it as one of the worst options available to the team. Like the worst option, and, and realistically, aside from a compromise deal, which is a favorable one for the club and allows them to manage Besser's value best, we're talking about varying shades of suboptimal outcomes. But for me, the worst possible one is to non-tender Besser. That's a non-starter, not going to happen. The second worst one is the arbitration path. <laughs> because you don't have the cost certainty, you kick the can down the road, you lose control over the actual cap number and the term. Um, that, to me, is the second worst option. The third worst option is the trade route, because at least you get something back. But I don't like that one either, because I think Besser's value is, is hugely distressed. And I want to come back to that in the context of the Fiala trade shortly. So bookmark that, and, yes. we'll, and we'll get back to it. Then you get to the one-year $7.5 million qualifying offer. It's tendered, it's accepted, Besser costs you know, 7.5 next season, which is more than you'd like him to cost, but... At least you just sort of kick the can down the road. Still not great because you're still dealing with a situation where Besser's not going to be at maximal value as an asset, right? And you're just going to have to repeat this entire process again next year. Sucks. Hate that option. But it's the best of the four different outcomes, that, possible outcomes that we've handicapped. Finally, you get to the compromise deal. And for me, that's the only way the team scores anything resembling a win. I laid out earlier this week at The Athletic, that signing bonus-laden front-loaded deal that I think makes a ton of sense. Comes in at a $6.66 million um, cap hit. You know, I, j I just think the Canucks are probably at an even more conservative number at the moment. And so we'll see. Uh, for me, this is a gap that should be bridgeable with some creativity, which is why I still hold out some, some hope. And yet, from what I'm hearing, 
the the prospect of arbitration is something that scares the team far less than it scares me. Mm-hmm. That they'd sort of view as being potentially more favorable than I would. Something they're, you know, I don't think they're afraid to do it if they decide that that's the the route to take. And something that I think is a far more realistic consideration as we go into this long weekend and as that deadline approaches than I would have expected it to be 10 days ago. Well, and I wonder if from the Canucks perspective, despite all the risks that you just outlined with arbitration, if there's any part of this where they see it as one of the only real kinds of means of leverage they have of exerting on the on the process and on Brock Besser, because the other, you know, non-tendering Besser, that's not a threat. That's just like, oh, great, you're a free agent now. Like, yeah, it, right. that, that helps him, right? So there's only so many buttons they can push that kind of tilt the leverage in their favor. And that, you know, arbitration, again, not without risk, without a lot of risk, but it's maybe the only button you can push that, I don't I don't want to say scares the player, but makes them think, okay, well, maybe if they're going to go down that road, maybe we should start talking about an extension. The way to view it, it, though, is that this is the most, you know, the July 11th deadline is the one we've talked about the most because that's the qualifying offer deadline. But the July 2nd deadline is the one that best drives compromise for for the reason that you're outlining, right? In terms of being a meaningful leverage point, it's actually right now. Like, it's the next 48 hours with Besser, which is why the fact that there's some frustration on both sides at this juncture in the process, to me, doesn't raise red flags. I'm sure there's listeners listening to this who are like, Vancouver media always making drama out of it. And it's like, I kind of react to this having covered a lot of these, having worked a lot of these, having spun a lot of these on the on the PR side. I kind of look at this as something that, you know, is normal, can be healthy. Uh, You know, oftentimes the deal that's reported to be far away is actually the deal that's close to breaking one way or another. Well, and it's interesting because there are so many wrinkles to this. It's not surprising that there's going to be road bumps along the way. You would expect it. You you would not expect it to be a really simple, hey, we we all agree what's going to happen here. We'll just sit down and hammer it out. You know, that those those types of negotiations do happen, but they tend to be with players who are like okay yeah they've been playing really well and they're going to be they're eligible for an extension on this date and we love the player and boom on day one we got the deal done I don't think that was ever going to be the situation here and to your point about the fact that we're hearing some of this this back and forth and a little bit of angst on both sides could actually end up being a positive I think back to when Besser signed this contract that's expiring right now after his entry-level deal uh, expired. And, you know, that was the typical situation where he's an RFA over the summer. And there's long periods where you're not hearing much. And then there was a moment where you started to hear a lot, some of it negative, some of it, oh, I don't know if this is going to happen. I don't know where this is going to go. But shortly after those reports start coming out, boom, a deal gets done. And I think there is just an element of when you start to really hammer out a deal like this, yeah, sometimes there's going to be an impasse. Sometimes there's going to be you know, things that you have to work through, but it doesn't mean that a deal is impossible. It's not as if they've, you know, reached their limit of negotiating between team and player here. I think about the Pedersen deal as well. The Pedersen deal was at maximum frustration. And then the next day it moved when CAA decided that they didn't, that they would do a bridge. Right. So, I mean, that was, that's a classic one. Like I remember going to bed, filing a story about how frustration was mounting on both sides, waking up in the morning and then getting, you know, a, a tip from from close to the players that they expected a deal done by the end of the weekend. And it was like enough to give you whiplash over the course of 12 hours. I mean, the only thing that I knew was that CAA and the Canucks had talked late that night. So I was a little prepared for, for a wrinkle, but nonetheless, yeah, this happens a lot. Uh, if you track these closely, uh, if you do it professionally, if you are often talking to all the principals involved on a regular basis, like it, it you know, there's a rhythm to it. And, and this rhythm to me, yes, there's an impasse. 
yes, there. I do think that this has not made the type of progress that both sides were hoping for, and yet I'm not going into the. I'm not going into this weekend thinking that um, this relationship's like truly in trouble or or anything like that. And I want to be very clear to our listeners that even as I'm reporting you that the prospect of arbitration has been an internal discussion point for the Canucks and that they don't appear to view it in the sort of negative light that I have tended to present it in, uh, presented in, excuse me. Um, you know, I, I also don't think we're fait accompli that this has an unhappy ending for the Canucks by any means. And we'll sort of wait and see how the weekend plays out. On top of that, if I had to place a bet, I would bet against the club filing for arbitration, even at this juncture. All right. My, yeah, my bet, and I've said this, is I would bet on an extension, and you've you've cautioned me off that. I think I'm still there, but if I was, you know, running the book on this one, I would I would up all of the other uh, possible outcomes, right? And one of those, and I want to talk about it in, in connection with the Fiala trade, one of the other possible outcomes is a trade, of course. And I think there were a lot of people who saw the return that Kevin Fiala got as an RFA that teams knew Minnesota was going to be extremely motivated to move. And look at that and say, wow, that's a pretty good deal. That's a nice return for Kevin Fiala. I just have a really hard time connecting the return that the Wild got into any sort of return that would be in play in a Brock Besser deal. And again, I, I know on the per game basis, you look at the you know the the totality of their careers. Brock Besser has the better statistical production, but Kevin Fiala is also coming off an eighty-five point season, a fantastic yeah, a forty point, season. and that matters a lot. Correct. The the NHL trade market. So I polled. Five executives yesterday around the league, Eastern Conference, Western Conference, very varying levels. And everyone agrees that the Fiala deal does not really set a market for Brock Besser. Now, all trades set something of a market for all, all other trades, but not quite connected in any meaningful way. And there's two main reasons for that. One is the qualifying offer difference, right? Fiala was, what, $6 million to qualify, coming off an 85-point season? No one even blinks at that. Besser's a $7.5 million QO, coming off of a 46-point season? People blink at that, right? That's that's something that people side-eye and worry about uh, in the NHL. Additionally, you know, the, the comment I got from one was, sometimes trade value is simplistic, right? One guy had 85 points, one guy had 46 points. You don't have to look at it too much deeper than that. And... Now, all of that said, too, there's a mitigating factor that I became aware of the more that I talked to executives about the trade around the league. And it's this. The LA Kings tried to sign Brock Faber this past spring, and Brock Faber returned to Minnesota. I don't know if you saw the photo of him celebrating a wild yep. goal with Kirill Kaprizov. But, and I don't think this is fair to Brock Faber, and I want to I be clear about this. I'm not saying it was an analogous situation to like an Adam Fox in Calgary and Carolina but there was a perception around the league that it could be, right? Again, I don't think that's a fair formulation for a junior player. Like, in order to go that route, Faber would have had to remain in college for two additional seasons beyond that to even begin to exercise that leverage. Are you really, when people are knocking down your door, offering you an entry-level contract that comes with a 100K signing bonus plus, like, the the potential to earn millions of dollars, are you really going to stay in college? Are you really, does it really matter that much to you? You know, I don't think it's fair to any player at his stage of his college career to say that that was a real risk. But around the league, it was something that teams that weren't the Minnesota Wild were aware of and that I do think impacted the trade value. So while you look at it on its face and say, you know, top right-handed defense prospect and first-round pick, right, around the NHL anyway, Faber wasn't viewed quite 
to the way that the public views him as as a return, if or, that makes sense. Or at the very least, he was worth less to L.A. than that description would suggest. Correct. Right? Correct. Might, have been, might be worth more. Minnesota might be the team he's the most valuable to in the league, right? There, because there they risk, have, have that extra confidence. There was some risk priced in from L.A.'s perspective and potentially from any other trading partner's perspective. And that is true. And that needs to be noted, and that's not totally fair for Brock Faber. I don't like. I want to note that I think the industry perception on him was was not quite right, but it existed. There was a priced-in risk in terms of that asset um, that I that I became aware of as I talked to multiple teams who had the same interpretation of it. So, on the one hand, Besser doesn't have Fiala's trade value. On the other hand, the Fiala trade value isn't quite what it looks like when you actually dig into the asset value returned. So those are two things to keep in mind here. I don't see Fiala as setting a Besser market by any means because of all the things I've gone through. I think that if the Canucks are going to do even okay on a Besser trade, they're going to have to take back a similarly distressed asset, a similar RFA player that maybe they value somewhat higher than the team that has them. There's a way to win that deal, but no question in my mind, the primary task at hand for the Canucks on the Besser front is to manage his overall value here. And the best way to do that is a compromise deal. Anything else fails to accomplish that goal. In in my view, we'll see what we'll see where it goes. Lastly, I don't think the Fiala return impacts the JT Miller market at all. But I think the Fiala extension is an interesting data point that only bolsters Miller's case for the Zabanajad comparable co- contract plus which is, you know, of course, the 8.5 times 8. And I, I do think at that level, the Canucks are going to be very hesitant to do that type of pact. I want, okay, we're obviously going to get into Miller in a big way. Elliot Friedman was on talking about him as well. I did want to read uh, this text, uh, which comes in unsigned, which says, I think Besser deserves a pass this year after after what he's been through. You can't compare him to Fiala. I think that's an extremely fair point, right? When you're evaluating Besser as a player, you have to take into consideration the extraordinarily difficult circumstances that he was playing under this season and that that's what makes would make me extraordinarily hesitant to trade him this year because there's such an easy argument to be made for expecting a bounce back for performance from Brock Besser next he, he season. He also showed up to training camp nursing a back injury and if you've watched Besser closely over the years you know that the first two months of the season his stride wasn't right he didn't have power he was getting late to puck battles he wasn't able to do the thing that Besser's increasingly been able to do, which is that, um, you know, Chris Higgins-like battling along the wall, winning a ton of pucks, right? Besser might not be the fastest guy on the forecheck, but he doesn't lose a lot of pucks along the wall. He's sneaky strong as a battle winner in particular. That drove, that was such a key driver of his success in 2021, and he didn't quite have that gear for the first two months of the season. And what happened in December? Guy went off. Why? Because he'd had weeks and weeks to recover from a back injury sustained, you know, early September, right before Canucks training camp. And people don't even mention that factor, that Besser was a shadow of himself for a very obvious injury reason prior to, uh, you know, the winter months when he began to heat up and, and become more effective. Not to mention the emotional turmoil that he was going through off of the ice for, for you know, obvious, uh, obvious reasons. And, and that's the other thing I'd add, you know, to me, that would be a factor in the type of hardball I played. I don't know if it will be for the Canucks, but it but it probably should be in terms of, you know, the arbitration route. I just don't see the the juice being worth the squeeze there at all. 
And and I'm not saying that would be a deciding factor because it is business, but it would certainly be part of my decision-making process were I in their shoes. Part of one of the goals of the going through this whole process with Brock Besser is managing the relationship as well. Totally. Right? And to, to our make arbitration sh- ends it. Yeah. It's, uh, from that perspective, um, it, you know, that, that makes retention long-term extremely difficult. It, it's not just about bringing the player back on a number that you like. It's about, okay, is, if he is going to be a part of our program, part of our team and what we're building here for years down the road you know, there are certain things you need to do to maintain and keep building that relationship. And as you said, especially in light of the circumstances Brock Besser was playing in this year, that has to be, I don't know if it's top of mind is the right word, because as we have somebody texting in here, you know, unfortunately it's a business and they're, they're going to have to make a really tough decision. I understand that, but it probably has to be farther up your priority list than it would be with a player not in that situation, right? Just making sure that, that because there is an outcome here, as much as we're talking about arbitration and trades and all of that, there is an outcome here where, you know, Besser signs a, a three-year extension, and then at the end of that deal, signs another extension. He's with the Canucks for a long time, and you got to protect that possibility. The club also has a really high regard. You know, there's a sentiment within the organization, like, down here, he scored 22 goals. And it's a common sense understanding. Like, this guy is a consistent 25-goal scorer if you prorate his goals just a little bit. Fr- frankly, he's a true talent 30-goal guy, right? Without a bounce, when you when you extrapolate his shot rate and then factor in the fact that he doesn't even play in his optimal spot on the power play. I mean, this is a guy who, if you played him on the half wall in your one three one, would be at almost every season automatic, doesn't even need a bounce to do it, 30 goal scorer, in my mind. Um, there's a lot of regard for the player. They want to keep him. They just need to keep him at a number that works. And that's sort of where they're where the impasse is coming from, right? I I mean, from Besser's Camp's perspective, I don't even think a three-year deal is optimal, right? You're selling sure. a UFA year. Sure. You're taking a haircut over your QO. And and I think one of the things that Frank nailed, like absolutely nailed, is that oftentimes with players, security is a big driver of outcomes. Frankly, security is a big driver of all human outcomes. But I do think because of the down year, that's less, like that. the incentive there is lessened for Besser. You know, he knows that he's better than 46 points. He knows that like bone deep, you know? And I think it's hard to lock yourself in considering everything you went through last year at a level that values you that way, particularly when the other option is seven, five, and you get to prove what you can do again. And so that's sort of one of the tricky things that the Canucks have to navigate. I still think the way through this is to front load a deal with a big signing bonus that pays tribute to the, qualifying offer leverage that Besser has and yet creates a structure where Manages the, club the cap can number get him to six five, six six, something like that. And just on your point about the the considerations of a long term deal, this text came in, you know, considering a buy low, sell high approach this offseason, it seems like a great time to sign Besser long term. Uh, then you could even potentially trade him next year after a bounce back season if you wanted. But as you said, we can all look at the reasons and you know, try to and, and predict with a fair degree of confidence that Besser's in line for a bounce back. And so can he, and so can his camp. And as you said, there, there's probably, there's a lot of reasons for him to say, you know, you know what, I, I'm, I'm motivated to come back and prove what kind of player I am and put up even better numbers and, and, and increase my leverage that way. So from my perspective, 
if I was the Canucks, I'd be happy to, to try to figure out a long-term deal. I'm not sure it makes a ton of sense from the player's perspective, though, right? Which is why we're talking two, three years, that kind of range. Well, and now that we've gone through it from just about every angle, like obsessively, with the with the type of obsessiveness that only the Vancouver usually market... Usually reserved for Alex Chason. Only, usually, but only the Vancouver market can bring this level of detail to player discussions, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. And... Having gone through it all, don't you understand why you'd be at an impasse? Don't yes, you under, you know, there's a lot to consider. There's a so lot to work through. This is not just, hey, you know, um, this guy X is a pending UFA and he scored he scored thirty between you know twenty five and thirty five goals for the last three seasons, and here's the number, right? The, even those co- uh, contract negotiations can be complex, but this is in a completely uh, completely well, different world. And let we'll come back to some of my updates because I've got some stuff on Horvat. I've got some stuff on Miller. I've got some interesting stuff on Rathbone and the bottom end of the Canucks lineup. So I want to get yeah, to that in the second segment. Stay tuned. But I just want to bring up one global point. Classic Drance fashion. Before we go for break. And it's this. The complexity of the Besser situation illustrates, once again, how important it is to manage second contracts for players. Right? If you nail it, like the Canucks did with Bo Horvat like the Canucks did with Thatcher Demko, both coincidentally are long-term deals. You get surplus value from a really good player in person, and then at the other side of it, the player feels like they've been taken care of for a while, you still like the guy, it's super easy. Like, it's the simplest type of relationship to have. No need to change your relationship status. To, it's complicated at any point, right? It's just free-flowing. The type of friend you can not see for two years and you just catch up right away, you know, except you see them every day because they play for your team. With Besser, however, and he's not the only guy who's gone through this. The Canucks are only two years removed from dealing with it with Troy Stetcher. They're a few years removed from doing it with Ben Hutton. Ben Hutton and Troy Stetcher might be depth defenders for you, but they're still NHL players, right? If you manage those second contracts in a different way, you might still have useful contributors on this roster right now who, by the way, would clearly play minutes for this team, right? Like clearly be playing minutes for this team. Managing your second contracts is so crucial, and and the two teams that do it best in the entire league, well, they happen to be competing for the Stanley Cup final, or the Stanley Cup. Like, in the Stanley Cup final, just, you know, it ended a week ago. Tampa Bay has this brilliant template where they grind everyone on bridge deals, and then they sign their big extensions. It's always 9.5, Vasilevsky, Kucherov, and Point, all matching 9.5s. They all do it the moment, the day they become eligible for those extensions. And now Tampa has this buy-in that allowed them to get Cernak and Sorelli and Sergeyev all done at absolute value costs, which honestly powered them making three consecutive Stanley Cup finals. Colorado, meanwhile, goes long on everybody. Whether they're great or not, they go long on the guys that they believe have elite-level talent. Landeskog, they went long on after an 18-point season. He signed him 5.5 average for seven years, following an 18-point season from the guy who'd won the Rookie of the Year the year prior. Uh, McKinnon, they went long. He, he, his value was at an absolute low ebb. They bet on him. Rantanen, long. McCarr, long. They've gone long on all their guys. Managing your second contracts is just such an important part of cap management and of building a winning team. And it's something that the Canucks need to do a lot better, particularly because having bumped into this issue with Brock Besser, there's a real chance that things could get complicated as well in a couple years with Elias Pettersson. And that is highly, highly problematic 
for where this club wants to go. More updates on JT Miller, Bo Horvat, Jack Rathbone, as you mentioned. Lots more discussion on the Canucks offseason and what could be a busy couple of weeks around the NHL and for the team. That's coming up. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, leave us a five-star rating and review. More on the way on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. What's going on? Welcome back to the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. Jamie Dodd and Canucks insider Thomas Drantz here with you for one final segment this week going into a Canada Day long weekend. Canucks Hour is brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. You have lots of updates to get into, and I also wanted to play this back, uh, Drancer, from Elliot Friedman, who, of course, was on his daily hit with Jeff Merrick, final edition of the Jeff Merrick Show, by the way, until the fall. Uh, so shout out to Friedman and Merrick for a job well done this year. And also shout out to Friedman for, without even needing a, a question from Merrick, just bringing up the Vancouver Canucks, taking care of us out here in Vancouver towards the end of the hit. Touched on a lot of different things, including Miller, Besser and Bo Horvat. Here's what Friedman had to say about where things stand with the Canucks right now. The one thing that the Fiala deal yesterday did was kind of show the market, right? And uh, yeah, uh, and you know, I, I had some people who thought that Minnesota did really well. I, had, I mean, it's like any other trade. Some people thought Minnesota did well. I think some people thought that Minnesota could have done more. I mean, whatever. I mean, we're all going to argue these kinds of things. I, I think it's I think it's interesting. I think if you're if you're Vancouver right now, you're looking at that and you're saying, we think we should be able to beat that for Miller if we do move him. And I think right now that the tips or the scales kind of tip that way. Um, you know, if they do move Besser, I think they would probably be looking for something around there. Um, but. I would think if you're Vancouver and you do decide to move Miller, you're hope you're, you're thinking you're getting more than that. Um, I don't like. I had someone who texted me today, like, "You hearing anything on Horvat?" I'm not. I, I think Vancouver is going to do everything to try to keep that guy. Um, mm-hmm. So I just wanted to throw that out there in for the Vancouver audience. That is Elliot Friedman, of course, uh, from Thirty Two Thoughts, Hockey Night in Canada, NHL Insider, with an update on Besser on Horvat and on JT Miller. And probably the most interesting nugget out of that, Drancer, was the Canucks maybe looking at the Fiala return and saying, okay, we should be able to beat that if we do go down the path of a JT Miller trade. And then Friedman also says he thinks the scale's tipping in that direction as we stand here right now. I'm not going to play, you know, I think Friedman might be a little bit ahead of me in terms of where, where the Canucks are leaning on the Miller front. That makes sense to me. But here's, I can sort of add some context explaining the organization's thought process on both players. So let's start with Horvat because this one's easy to get through and there's a really stark contrast with Miller that's worth noting. It's been extraordinarily quiet around Horvat, like Admiral Akbar saying it's a trap level quiet, you know? But preliminary and informal discussions have occurred there between the Canucks and Bo Horvat's representative. Uh, He's represented by Pat Morris of Newport Sports. I believe, with good reason, because sources have indicated it to me, that 
there's a comfort level there between both sides. Now, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that something's close. I'm not saying that I'm expecting a deal or an extension to get done on July 13th. But he's a key part of this club's plans. They will not be listening or considering a Bo Horvat trade this summer. Like, the only place Horvat is going this summer is to his cottage in Ontario and maybe a Blue Jays game or two. <laughs> Extending him is a priority, and I think there's a comfort level internally that where they want to go with Horvat and what he wants is sufficiently aligned. Right? So the need for intensive talks, what, what have you, might wait for later in the summer, might wait for training camp. Obviously, if this gets close to the trade deadline, we'll we'll have our antenna up. Different conversation clearly. then, yeah. But they're gonna they're gonna kick this can down the road. They're they are prioritizing keeping Bo Horvat, this team's captain, as a member of the Canucks, and clearly there's a, a sense that they're going to be able to do so with Miller. Talks have definitely been more advanced with Miller's camp than Horvat's, but that's not necessarily a sign of progress, right? The incentives are different for Miller. Right? Bo Horvat had 30 goals this year, which he hasn't really done before. But for the most part, this was just a Bo Horvat season. Right, 25-plus goals, played a matchup role, 60 points. Ho-hum. Bo Horvat's kind of exactly who he is every year. Miller had 99 points. The incentives here are different because Miller, obviously, and his camp want to sign their next deal off the back of this past season for good reason, even though there's a chance, of course, that Miller repeats it Espe- now that he's a full-time center. Especially if he's back in Vancouver. Totally. Right? If that if that materializes, he's going to have a very similar role. He's going to play a lot on the power play. He's going to have a chance to do it again. Now, Elliot's saying that the scales he thinks are tipping, and, and that makes sense if the home run deal is Miller's main priority, right? I, I mean, I think this has always been one of those, and I, we, we had the argument a little bit yesterday, right? The, you have to throw out the big money contract as even a consideration it has to be a sensible one or or it has to be a trade and you have to be proactive about it and I, I do think that the club has reached a point where they are guided by an awareness that the risk and complexity increases here if they get beyond the next two weeks with Miller still on the roster and unextended right they, they weren't plussed about holding him beyond the trade deadline but this time it's different there is a different set of considerations. And from what I can gather, talking to various sources around the league and, and internally, there's some pretty appealing offers out there. Miller's on the top or close to it of, of a lot of teams' trade boards going into this offseason. And I'm getting a sense internally that the club believes that the offers for Miller actually are better than what the club was working through ahead of the trade deadline, which is interesting because some of those reported offers look pretty good <laughs> when you when you consider it now. My sense on Miller is, is to not yet handicap which way exactly it's going to go. A lot of the league believes that he could be available for the right price. I think there's some appealing offers that the Canucks are going to sift through o- over, the, over the next week uh, leading up to the NHL draft. Um, I still think there's a tremendous regard for the player and, and a deep considered and cautious understanding of just how difficult it would be to replace his contributions. And yet, you know, I I do think that the club is approaching this with some urgency, with a sense of it has to be one or the other, and it has to be one or the other before the silly season expires. That all makes sense. Right. And 
I wonder, you know, with the comparison between the Fiala return and the JT Miller potential trade, if they go down that path, look, Fiala is, he's a lot younger. And I, I understand that. But I also think, you know, one of the, one of the big concerns I think that fans have had, and I know Sat has talked about this a lot, is if you deal Miller, are you getting a legitimately premium piece back or two even premium pieces back, or are you just kind of getting volume of decent pieces, right? And to me, what the Fiala one shows is they should expect, and look, obviously, you know, your mileage may vary on how you value uh, Brock Faber. I'm not a prospect expert, but we, you know, I, I listen to people that I trust on prospects. We had Cam Robinson on. Uh, on the show yesterday, and and he was gushing about Faber's upside. I would look at that as a, a premium piece, right? The two pieces they got back, if that if equivalent things were the foundation of a JT Miller deal, and then maybe you work a little bit around the margins on that, I would be pretty happy with that from a Canucks perspective. So if if they're going to, I, to me, what it says is maybe it's not an exact analogy, but I think it should increase your confidence that you can get those kind of legit high end, high upside pieces back in a JT Miller deal. Obviously, the more teams are willing to offer for JT Miller, the more that is, you know, to use Friedman's terminology, the more that is going to tip the scales away from the Canucks signing the player because eventually they just get so enticing, you feel like you have to pull the trigger. And to your point about the contract negotiations and, and you know, the the urge or the priority for JT Miller to, present, to tr- sign that deal coming off of this year, this 99-point season... You know, I, I again, I was talking about it with Sat yesterday on the show, and he was saying, you know, maybe it could come in a lot lower than people are actually expecting. I just keep looking back at the, the Mika Zibinijad deal, right? And I don't see the persuasive case for why JT Miller should get significantly less than that player got with the New York Rangers, right? Yeah, Miller is going to be, I believe, one year older when the extension kicks in. So, okay, maybe you adjust it down a touch but you don't adjust it down by $15 million of total value or anything like that, right? You just adjust it a little bit. And, you know, that was one that was signed in when the pandemic was in full swing. So they were living in a, in a flat cap world as well. There's so many similarities in terms of production, age, all of that. It's hard for me to get past that as a comp, as, as a deal that makes sense for a JT Miller framework. And I agree with you, Drancer. I think if it's in that stratosphere... I don't see it making sense for the Canucks long-term. And if you kind of couple those things t- together, right, where, like, that's the type of deal we're talking about, and teams are really willing to give you a, a legit offer, a, a really, really good solid offer in terms of a trade, yeah, the, the scales would naturally start to tip extremely in the direction of the of a trade if those two things are true. It's it's a really good point. And, and so you can follow, like, once again, I think, the context that I'm giving on how the club's viewing it is sort of enhanced by Friedman's reporting, just like I think the Saravalli uh, take exactly squares sort of provides you a fuller picture when when you when you hear my updates combined with his, and I, and I think you're dead on that Friedman's do the same. Um, now, I want to talk about the big picture. I want to zoom out to 30,000 sure. feet. This management group has been a little bit cipher-like in their communication, which is funny because they've also been squarely direct in a lot of ways, right? Promise, deliver, promise, deliver. And yet, in terms of an overarching vision for what they want to accomplish, I don't know that they've articulated it. And in fact, I think they've intentionally not. So you've got the breadcrumbs for Rutherford and Alvin to double down on this group now. Not to double down on this group in terms of taking on significant long-term cap space, 
but certainly to build a team that the obvious goal is to push for the third playoff spot in the Pacific. I mean, that's very much on the table based on a variety of Rutherford's commentary, including his comment on the first day, you know, I think this team could be better than anyone thinks they are, right? And there's no question. He loves this core group, right? Demko, Horvat, Hughes, Pedersen. There's a lot of internal belief from new management about the caliber of those four players, quite rightly, by the way. And yet, the focus on cap space, the focus on players at, you know, in the right age tier, right? Those mid-20s, young 20, like early 20s guys. Uh, the focus on rebuilding the right side of the defense, which could be a multi-year project. Some of the targets, some of the bets we've seen them make suggest something that's more like a retool, right? More more like a, I, I've liked to call it a reload mm-hmm. to take care of some of the fundamental uh, health things that this organization lacks in terms of prospect depth, in terms of cap flexibility, and so on and so forth. They've left themselves wiggle room to go in either direction in terms of their public commentary. And I truly believe at this point that handicapping what Rutherford's vision is going to entail would be an error. I think there's a sense of flexibility around this organization heading into the offseason. And I think you're seeing that play out too with the Miller thing, right? So, for example, say five days from now, they've, they find a way to get a Miller deal done that they really like. They'd love that. Yeah, you're not to interrupt, but you're. I I think it. On the one hand, I can understand why fans would say, "Okay, we want to know what the vision is. We want to know what the plan is." But your vision is going to change if Miller is available for way more for a way more team friendly yeah. price than you expected. If, that changes your vision. If Miller's five times eight, yeah, yeah. Well, all of a sudden, that changes your done. vision in a big way. Done. Yeah, right. And so, you know, I think there's a sense of opportunism around this team right now. I, I think they're willing to go in a multiple multitude of different directions and it's going to depend on, all right, all right, what's the final dollar figure? Okay. What's the possible return? Okay. What do we prefer? What helps us more? And, and so I think that's going to be an overarching theme here. And, and so the two long-term priorities that I do expect the club to be mindful of within this is rebuilding the right side of the defense. We all know this. This is not difficult to figure out. And making sure that the club has the cap flexibility they need in the years to come. Those are the two, like, long-term, what does this club feel they need most to to accomplish building a contending team in the years ahead? That's 1A and 1B. And probably cap space first and then right side of the defense second. Now, what does that mean for the short-term? Well, short-term goals include the following. Sandpaper for the bottom end of their forward group. Speed up and down the forward ranks. And some top four help. Finding a way to better insulate that Myers-Oliver-Eckman-Larsen pair. And there's a real chance that the club determines that their best route to doing so is not through the right side. Because there's not the type of economical righty that they see as a long-term fit for their group available in an unrestricted free agency. We could see them bring in an economical lefty, right? Like a guy who makes sense in terms of their overall age range. You know, it was 27 maybe, like one of those young UFAs. Costs less than $4 million per, signs for three or four years as opposed to eight mm-hmm. or seven, I guess, if you're signing another team's UFA. that I could see them making that type of move as a result of the absence of right-sided guys and moving one of Oliver ekman Larson, something I've talked about a lot this offseason and I'm dead on about, 
and also and also one other guy who I think the organization views as a possibility to play on the right side is is Travis Dermott. And so within that, I think there's some flexibility to maybe get a lefty and go with, you know, uh, uh, guys on their strong side on the right side if it comes to that based on the options available. And again, flexibility reigns. But make no mistake, even within that context, rebuilding the right side of the defense is a top line priority for this club over the long term, even if it's expressed paradoxically with a left side addition in the short term. I want to talk about uh, how that relates to Jack Rathbone, but just quickly on your point about the two kind of big goals for this club being the salary cap flexibility in the future and rebuilding the right side. Again, you look at what a JT Miller trade could potentially do for both of those goals. You know, on the one hand, you're not committing to a big money contract for years down the road. And depending on what the return is, it, it, it you know, it could give you a young cost controlled player that maybe fits on your right side. It could give you draft capital that you use to address that position as well. So it's not hard to imagine how potentially uh, a potential deal there would fit in to those goals. Okay. So one of the interesting things that I think a lot of people are going to think about if they are considering moving OEL and or Travis Dermott over to the right side, does that open up a pretty clear path for Jack Rathbone to be a part of this team at a training camp next year? I think the club is going to carve out a spot for Jack Rathbone. I've been asking around, especially actually in light of our conversation the other day, both the endowment uh, effect mm-hmm. conversation we had, and then again in terms of discussing RFA. So Jack Rathbone's going to be qualified. Shocker. Yeah, what, what a shock. Qualifying your best prospect. And I would expect the club to sign him to an NHL deal, right? Uh, Jack Rathbone's qualifying offer entitles him to a two-way deal. Uh, one thing you often see is a team will go with a one-way deal as a way of sort of reducing the cap hit. I, I'll be surprised, actually, if they consider going with a little bit of term, maybe, to, to lock in some upside shitty hits. Not Not the worst play, in my view. I'm not saying that Rathbone's going to be in the Canucks' top six to make the season uh, to to start the season. That's going to be dependent on training camp on the summer he has. But I can tell you this: the organization loves the speed. They love the work ethic and the character that he showed down in Abbotsford. They love the hunger in the belly. Right? I mean, this is a player. Yes, there's work to be done on the defensive side of the puck. Yes, he's not the biggest defenseman, but he throws hits. He doesn't shy away from physical play. He dropped the gloves on occasion last season. This is a guy that they see as being the type of player they want long-term. And part of that process is going to be leaving a spot on the 23-man roster for him, right? This is not me speculating. This is uh, reporting what sources have told me uh, about the organization's internal thinking on the matter. Now, I don't know what this means for guys like Brad Hunt, for example. As I said, there's a view internally that you can bump a variety of their lefty defensemen over to the right side if necessary. So I'm not calling this a prescriptive move by any means, but Jack Rathbone, they are going to carve out space for him on the 23-man, if not necessarily in the top six on opening night. Could take an injury for him to really launch his career and become an everyday player. Uh, Could take him seizing the job at training camp. But one way or another, Rathbone's going to start the season on the 23-man, you know, barring a trade or something unforeseen, which I'd be a little bit surprised by. I'm, you know, I I checked into it. I kicked some tires on it. I, I, I I poked around. Organizations really high on Jack Rathbone. They see him on the 23-man roster as an NHL-level player to start next season. Very interesting. As you said, maybe it takes an injury. Maybe it takes somebody else having a rough night or whatever the case is. An outstanding uh, training camp performance for him to actually be in the lineup every night. But the idea of 
okay, all of a sudden there's a path to playing time because a couple of guys are moving on uh, to the right side, potentially, or at least our possibilities to do so. Very, very interesting for Jack Rathbone. So I know you wanted to get this in quickly before we go, Drancer, and uh, Mike and Willoughby texted in earlier in the show, this Besser stuff is boring, more Alex Chase on talk. So we, we got to follow up on our epic Alex Chase on discussion uh, from yesterday with a little Chase on tidbit here to end the show as well. Club loves Alex Chase on. Why wouldn't there you? There you go. Why wouldn't you? Uh, and yet, I would be surprised were the club to come to terms with the big power play specialist ahead of free agency opening. I, I think there's a lot of regard for him as a person, as a professional off the ice for his experience and for what he brought to the fourth line. And yet, at the end of the day, this club wants speed and sandpaper in the fourth line. On uh, you know, in those bottom other roster roles, I, I think they could revisit things with Chase on if he's still available on the market a couple weeks in. But I, I would be surprised if they come to terms with him prior to the 13th. There's your Chase on update. If um, Chase on hour, listen on Sportsnet 650. I'm telling you, man. If they do, you know, circle back as we say, uh, it's it's approaching. It's rapidly approaching circle back season. Actually, now that you now that you mentioned, love it. circle back season. Uh, if they do circle back on Alex Chase on and and get him signed to a new deal for next year, I mean, we we've we're got throwing, we're we, throwing a party. Well, Streamers well, no, and everything. But we've got to get the interview right. Yeah, like, 100%. come on, it's got to be us. I, I haven't seen the other shows. Doing 20-minute deep dives on Alex Chason? Full segments. Full segments. Uh, And with that, that is going to conclude this segment of the show. Long weekend, so no show tomorrow, but uh, pretty exciting. We're going to be on not just Canucks Hour, not just one Canucks Hour, Drancer. Canucks Hours. Canucks Hours. A little bit of a different time for the next couple of weeks. 10 till noon, obviously getting you covered with the draft free agency, all of that. So an extended, mega-sized edition of Canucks Hour going for the next couple of weeks. That starts on Monday. Enjoy the long weekend. The People Show is up next on your home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.